couple of the uh, comments from the kids last night as they came up and went back to their classes. One of them said, that's the best graduation I've ever had in my whole life. <laughs> that's what she said. And then one of the little boys said, they had a red carpet for me and everything. So really awesome, man. So where did all those kids come from? I'm looking out here. Some of you look like me. You haven't produced those, at least recently. And it's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, love kids around here. Well, Ann mentioned that uh, this last week we got to, our four-generation family got to hang out for a couple of days together over at the coast. And Katie, our oldest granddaughter, is uh, 19 months old now. She's the big one. And about, the house is about five blocks from the beach. And so uh, on the way down, there's a bunch of blackberries. And oh man, are they good right now or what? just delicious. So we picked blackberries and we fed Katie blackberries. And so by the time she got to the beach, she was one purple mess of joy. And then I got to take her out to the water and uh, she's just fearless. It was a good thing somebody like me was around and she splashed and she got wet and now she is purple joy and she is salty sticky. And then, of course, she played in the sand. And so by the time she was done being on the beach, you could hardly recognize this ball, this creature that was covered with purple, sticky, salty, sandy. And then she was tired, so I got to carry her back to the house. And so <laughs> we were twins by the time we got back there. And you, you wouldn't be surprised what happened for Katie. Shortly after that, she was in the big bathtub. And, and after a little while, all of that purple, sticky, sandy, salty all got washed away, and there was Katie in all of her essence, the essence of Katie, with all of the other stuff washed away. As we launch into a new series today called Essentials, looking at in the next seven weeks, the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians, we're going to each week be looking about one essential quality that we discover about God what he's done, and how we identify and access that in our own lives. We're going to take a look in just a moment at the first essential. We're going to be reading in Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses. But before we get there, just let me mention a couple things on the way forward. Paul is writing this grand letter, introducing us to who God is and God's grand purposes for each of us. Maybe some of you have gotten to see the Michelangelo statue of David. Uh, if you haven't been there in, um, to, to see it uh, in Italy, personally in Florence, uh, we've all seen pictures of it, right? The first time Ann and I saw it, I made a vow to myself, and that was that I would never show that statue publicly where there was a group of men because it's just so intimidating. Seeing it in person was awe-inspiring on one hand, and then it was, Michelangelo, why did you have to do that? It's like this, like this Greek god on steroids or something, just this massive, amazing creature, but a beautiful, beautiful sculpture. Some of you may have heard that when Michelangelo completed the David, as he called it, he was asked, how did you do that? And his response that's reported is, I just chipped away the stone that didn't look like David. That's what he said. Yeah, easy for him to say, right? What's God doing in your life today? God is chipping away the stone that doesn't look like Jesus. God, with the water of his word, 
Later in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, he washes us with the water of his word. When we expose ourselves to God's word and his spirit, he washes away the sticky, the grime, the salty, the sand. He chips away the stone so that we essentially end up looking like we were created to be the likeness and image of Jesus. Paul founded this church essentially in Ephesus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19. The city of Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, likely the second largest city in the entire world, Rome being the largest. It was kind of positioned in that empire like Los Angeles would be in our culture, the second largest city. It was a place of tremendous influence and power, politically, philosophically, commercially, financially. It was multi-ethnic, it was multi-racial, it was pluralistic in its beliefs. It was a center where magic was believed and practiced. You'll read there in Acts chapter 19 that when many people came to Christ, that Paul had them bring their magic books and equipment and uh, trinkets and spells and ambulance. And, and the result was the burning of what would be in our dollars, several million dollars worth of stuff that was used in the practice of magic. It was also <clears throat> religious, the, the, the dominant religious was the worship of Diana or Artemis, depending upon which original language the word was translated in. In fact, a temple in her honor there in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Today, only one solitary pillar stands in tribute to that temple. Ephesus was an amazing center, a tremendous influence. And Paul comes to this city to discover if there's people who know Jesus. He found some folks that had heard of him that had an incomplete understanding he leads them to a fuller faith in Christ. He, he, he and his friends rent a, a little commercial hall, maybe something like a social a civic center, and they called it the School of Tyrannus, and he had regular Bible studies there, and a group of leaders emerged in that church, and he went on later, and then now he writes back to them, this group of Christians that came to Christ in an amazingly spiritual but not godly environment and many Bible scholars believe that this church at Ephesus became the largest Christian church in the world toward the end of the first century. In fact, we believe that it was the Apostle John that lived the last of his life there. And many believe that John took Jesus' mother, Mary, for Jesus had given Mary into John's care at the cross, lived out her remaining years there as well. As Paul writes back to these people that he knows well, he begins with a greeting and then he bursts into praise and revelation about how wonderful and awesome God is. I'm going to ask you to consider that with me as he asks and answers his question about who is God and what's the meta story of what God is up to? What's the big overarching story? It's a story of four pieces. Each of them are so apparent in the first three chapters of Ephesus. The first part of the story is creation. God made the heavens and the earth, and he created humankind to be a special race, to be his people, his family, to, to go off into the future and yet unrevealed to us destiny and plans that God has for us in partnership with him. God's creation. The second piece was sin and the fall. The God's great plans were horribly interrupted and broken because sin always destroys things. And sin caused separation from us with ourselves, us in relationship with others, us in relationship with God, and us in relationship to the rest of God's creation, nature itself. 
The third big part of God's story is redemption, finding a way for God to restore us to that originally intended relationship that he created us for, and in that restored relationship to take us to the fourth part of his big story, which is a future that he has purposed and planned for us to live with, love with, and rule and reign with him forever. It's an amazing story. And that's the context in which Paul launches into this great letter. Would you notice it with me? Chapter 1 of Ephesians, starting with verse 1. We're going to read the first couple of verses, pause for just a moment, and then read on verses 3 through 14. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. End of his greeting. And now he launches in the rest of our reading today in the original language into one sentence. It is a run-on, run-on, run-on sentence, unlike anything he wrote anyplace else. We assume that Paul is probably dictating. He might have been writing, but we discover that usually he was dictating. And it's like he's having this burst of revelation about who God is and what he's done and this burst of his response of praise in it. And he just can't stop for a breath and he can't stop for a period. Now I am gonna stop for a breath and our translation does have some periods, but I want you to feel the intensity, the energy, the burst of joy, the praise that's pouring out here as he's trying to use words to describe what he's sensing with Holy Spirit inspiration about how big and how great and how loving God is. And this is the sentence. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we've received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Exclamation point. Deep breath. Yeah. Wow. Well, Paul just had a praise verse, didn't he? He learned some things that he had never known before. He's being inspired here by God's Spirit. 
as he's trying to answer this grand existential question that every man, woman, and young person in the history of humanity has asked, who is God and what has he done? And what are the implications for my life? And today we discover three great revelations about God's choosing us. The first essential when it comes to our faith in Christ is that you are chosen. Let's notice the first one. It's this. We are chosen to live in grace and peace. Grace and peace. God made a decision about Paul. Now, Paul, when he introduced himself, said, Paul, an apostle. For the casual reader, that might sound to be a bit arrogant, mightn't it? I mean, after all, Paul has introduced what his background and history was in other places. It wasn't all that impressive. In fact, he said very candidly, I'm the worst sinner I know. I was self-righteous, judgmental, arrogant, and a murderer. He used those descriptors to describe the identity that he had before Christ. So he said, well, Paul, why didn't you just start in and say, Paul, the arrogant, self-righteous murderer, eventually called apostle. No, he just goes right to his new identity. He does the same thing with the people he's writing to. He says, you folks at Ephesus, I remember you. Remember, I started this church. I was your first pastor. I know you well, you holy people in Christ. Oh, holy, huh? Holy, which means holistic, healthy in its fullest three-dimensional form. Healthy, holy, healed, perfect, righteous, blameless, without fault, no scratches, no door dings from the parking lot, absolutely without flaw and blemish. The people at Ephesus may have scratched their head and said, Paul must be getting old. That prison thing must not be working so well for him. Uh, we're not all that good. Now, he gets around to that in chapters 4, 5, and 6, particularly in chapter 4. We discover that these people still had some door dings. You know what they were doing to each other, these good, God-loving, holy people? Some of them were lying to each other, stealing from each other, being mad and acting out in harmful ways. They had messed up marriages and homes. These people were a mess in life. But he starts out and he says, I'm called apostle, and you're called holy. And that's why I pronounce over you grace and peace. Wow, what a way to start. Why did Paul go right to his new identity? Why is it that he rushed to the new identity of these people? It's not because of something that he had done, was it? Or something that they had done? Or a level of, quote, Christian maturity that they had finally achieved toward? Or that when they were graded on the curve that most of them were above average? Or that they were people with particularly high potential? In fact, your greatest friend in the first two verses, other than the name Christ, is the word that precedes it. It's two letters long. I-N. In Christ. That's why he was able to make these audacious but accurate claims. In Christ. What we've discovered makes all the difference, not only now but for eternity, is where you are located regarding Christ. If you are in Christ, God treats you entirely with the perfection that he sees in Christ, and you are forever a part of his family. And this grand destiny 
that you were created for in community with others is yours to anticipate, live in now, and look forward to. In contrast, if you are outside of Christ, then regardless of how good, well-intended, highly motivated, or beneficial you might be, is not the distinguishing factor of whether or not you have a relationship with God. Because it's either in Christ, based upon receiving his forgiveness of sin, or outside of Christ, still making the effort to do it on our own. What a powerful way to start for this church at Ephesus, living in this multicultural and philosophically and religiously pluralistic environment, very much like the greater Portland metro area where we are, as a people, as a community, very spiritual, but not very godly. Because God has put in us this interest in a life that is bigger than just being, being bodies of meat and bone. There's a sense of the eternal in us, but that life is only found in Christ. The first part of being chosen is being chosen in grace and in peace. Grace, which which is God giving you blessing and goodness and favor absolutely irrespective of how much, if any of it, you deserved. Grace. In fact, frankly, how good we were or weren't becomes irrelevant at this point. Paul goes on to say, and he used two beautiful words, that God has, we read them, God gave his grace freely, which means that you didn't have to earn 1% of it. And he gives his grace lavishly in that he is ridiculously generous in how he just pours it out on us. He backed up the whole dump truck load of grace and poured it all out on you. No wonder Paul writes, grace to you, God's favor. Peace. Peace comes from the ancient Hebrew word that's still used in the 21st century, shalom a word which is far more just than the absence of strife, but it's the condition of wholeness in its deepest sense, being whole with oneself, with others, with God, and even with nature as well. Shalom, this pervasive three-dimensional sense of what's right and good when God has his way. Paul says to these people, still flawed in their experience, still on their way, but in Christ, grace and peace to you. It was just a few days ago, I met with one of the business owners here, a part of the church, and he's going through the most professionally challenging time of his life. There's goofed up relationships, there's slander, there's false accusations about him. In fact, the situation has become so severe that it's actually professionally dangerous for him. It's the kind of stuff that would just keep any of us up all night, every night. And as we met together and as we prayed together, I felt led to pray this simple but profound prayer over him that God would release his lavish grace in this situation. Grace, which is just favor spilling out over every circumstance and relationship in detail and praying God's peace over this situation, that this conflicted, messy, broken business environment would come back into God's sense of wholeness and order. 
I pray today for you as I do each day as a congregation that God would bless you with his grace and his peace. It's the first thing we discover about being chosen by God. You've been chosen for grace and for peace. The second thing we discover is that we've been chosen first in love. Yeah, chosen first in love. When I saw uh, the kids here on the platform a few minutes ago, and some of them now are in elementary school, I had a flashback. Many of you will be able to share a similar memory. You remember what it was like when maybe your teacher selected from your class two captains? And it's recess time or it's PE. And one of those captains is your best friend, and you're all excited because the captains now, their first job is to what? It's to choose teams. And you're just so hoping to get picked first, right? I know what it looked like for me. I mean, my hand was up, and I was jumping, and I was shouting my friend's name, pick me, pick me, pick me. And she picks you first. Do you remember how that feels? A whole bunch of stuff. First of all, it feels pretty exciting and wonderful. You get to be on the team with your friend. And secondly, there's some prestige with being picked first, isn't it? I must be the best at this thing. Look at me, picked first. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, feels good. And then, of course, there's the release from building anxiety about not being picked at all. At least I've been picked now. And I go and I stand with my best friend, and I watch to see how the rest of the losers are now going to be selected from my classmates. Now, we're not all good at everything, and so we've all been on both sides of this thing, haven't we? You know what it feels like to be the loser? It's down now to three of us. I'm praying to God as I'm jumping and waving at my friend, pick me, pick me. Now it's a pathetic plea and begging, and it goes down to two. And I begin to experience this overwhelming anxiety of, oh, God, don't let me be picked last, because being picked last isn't being chosen at all. It's just being assigned to a team that didn't want me. There's nothing good about being chosen last. Paul says, God in his infinite largeness and capacity was able to make a dramatic selection. He chose you first. That's how he chose you. Wow. As we read, and you can take a look at it later, just going to make reference to this burst of praise that we read. Paul goes back in time. From our point of view, we're so limited in our understanding of time. We we see it in three dimensions, past, present, and future. God doesn't live within the context of those three dimensions of time. He is eternal, and because of that, he's able to experience simultaneously and absolutely what we feel is past, present, and future. So when God makes a decision, from our point of view, any point in time, it is a decision that is effective across all of eternity. Paul takes us back in this passage to our first primary human reference point in time, which was the creation of the world. And he says, I'm going to take you back in time before that. What's before creation of the world, of the universe, as we understand it more completely now with its billions of galaxies. What's before that is God. Before the creation of the world and before the establishing of the first couple that procreated the world in the human species that God uniquely designed to become his family, to rule and reign with him through all of eternity, before time, God made a decision 
about you. That's what he said. Wow. Now, I can't wrap my brain around it because I'm limited to three dimensions and how I understand space and time. But I can believe the truth of this, that an eternal loving God, my perspective, reached ahead and saw what was going to occur in his creation, the fall in sin, the solution that he would provide in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and restoring us to being a community of faith, loving, learning, living together in relationship with him, his family, for all of eternity. And he made a decision that he was going to include you. Now he uses a couple of big words. Chosen is one of those. Another word is predestined. It was the Apostle Peter later that includes another big word. It's for new or for knowledge. And theologians have written huge books and they fought in every generation for the last 2,000 years about what all of this means. And I don't diminish or demean the work they've done, but let me put it in the context that we read today. Paul did not anticipate that he was gonna be using words that people thought about as some dry and dusty theological treatise or statement. He's having a praise burst here. And he doesn't understand it all either. But he does understand this. Before time was, God decided to choose me. And I don't get all that. But I benefit from all of that. And he includes the rest of us as well. And he says to you, God chose you first. You say, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous even if I get over the space-time limitations. It's ridiculous because how could God have a basis to decide to choose me until I was actually born and lived life so he had some data on which to make his decision? Well, isn't that the wrong question? God didn't choose you based upon any decision that you would make. He didn't choose you because of your potential because of your motivation, because of your behavior, good, bad, or indifferent, he reached ahead in time and he said about you, I am going to create you to be a person that's a part of my community and my family with an eternal destiny and I'm going to make a way to assure that that relationship can be restored and can be fulfilled in the intentions that I have. You were chosen, first of all, in love. Wow. You see, what Paul is really doing is he's describing for us the nature of a father, not a theological idea. Fathers, mothers love their kids and they'll do anything to go after them and pester them and bug them and love them because we care so much for them. The first time that Ann and I took uh, our kids to Yellowstone, they were both preschoolers and we knew that earlier that summer that some people had done the unwise thing of climbing over fences and ended up slipping off the side and going to their death. It happens every summer. We heard this, this summer, just weeks ago, the tragic story of a church youth group that was visiting Yellowstone. Three of the kids decided to have a better picture taken of them. They climbed over the fence. They were swept over the falls. Horrible tragedy. Ann and I, very aware of that, not expecting that our preschool kids should have any sense of that or make them fearful about that, but were we ever going to be good parents for them? And as we walked down, there was a little split rail fence here, and on the other side was the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. And we said to the kids, now hold on to the top rail, and they did, and now put both feet on the ground, hands on the top rail, both feet on the ground. Thank you, please, thank you. 
And you know what happened? You know what happened? Sure, she put her foot on the bottom rail and began to pull herself up so she can go over the fence. What did I do? I was a good, loving, persistent father. I reached toward her and I grabbed her, not harshly, firmly. And I said to her, not in anger, sternly, both feet on the ground is what I said. This wasn't retribution. This wasn't some kind of a ridiculous tirade. This wasn't punishment. This was the pursuit of a father that knew better in that situation. And of course, I grabbed onto her. That's why Paul is bursting with praise. You were chosen first in love. God looked ahead in time and said, I pick you and I will not let you go. And Paul says, we were chosen first in love. Well, are we ready for the third one? Am I cranked up today or what? We got to get here, don't we? Let's go. Let's take the third one. You were chosen on purpose for purpose. Chosen on purpose for purpose. He says here essentially, listen, as crazy as things look in Ephesus, people going off on all kinds of weird spiritual tangents, people acting out all kinds of different behaviors, people being involved in all kinds of different religious systems, as crazy as Ephesus is, as crazy as Portland, keep it weird, is, as crazy as it is, everything in heaven and on earth is under the loving hand of a sovereign God. That's what he says. Now, does that mean that God manipulates everything, that controls everything? Absolutely not. God did not make 9-11 happen 10 years ago today. But that does not negate the fact that everything is under the hand of a loving God. And what we read here that Paul is writing to us is not that God controls every detail. He gives us the opportunity to make choices, good and bad. But that ultimately God's purpose is going to be fulfilled. Everything he is using to work together toward those ends. Because it says this, as we read in verse, I believe, 13, toward the end of this passage, Paul says, this is what God has purposed and will fulfill, that everything in heaven and on earth will be brought together in unity under Christ Jesus. That's what he says. It's the fourth part of the meta story. Creation, the fall, redemption, and now God's grand purpose for the future. God chose you in love. He also chose you on purpose. He created you, designed you in a perfect way. He chose for you to live at this particular time and generation in your life. He chose to bless each of us with living in the greater Portland metro area in the northwest part of this nation, one of the two most independent and unchurched places in the country. He chose for us to live in an environment that's multi-ethnic, multicultural, that is pluralistic, that has a proliferation of religious seekers finding different paths and avenues. And he's not at all intimidated about that choice on his part or ours. It was in Ephesus that the largest, largest Christian church in the first century was established as one of the largest, strongest, most healthy, and mature that was found. Paul writes this to the church at Rome, where sin abounds so much more, God's grace abounds. What a privilege to be chosen on purpose 
for a purpose. It's what God is doing. He says toward the end that this is just an appetizer, folks. Whatever blessing and joy and healing and freedom that you're experiencing now is is just an appetizer. It's the first step. It's just the start. It's just the beginning. In verses 11 through 14, he talks about what the Holy Spirit does in us. He's just giving you a taste. It's the appetizer for the marriage supper of the Lamb because part four of the big story, when God restores it all to the unity of his original intention, that's where the big beginning happens. Right now is just this taste in advance. Wow, chosen on purpose for purpose. So where does it lead us as we kind of wrap this grand praise burst up? We have a couple of questions we ask. First of all, how has God done this? How has he done it? Verse four tells us very clearly, he's done this in love. He didn't do it because we were lovable, because we were particularly good, because we had potential, or because we were lucky in the lottery. He did it in love. It all initiates with a loving father. And he did it in love in eternity before the earth was created which meant by the time 2,000 years ago that God's son, Jesus Christ, the perfect one, died on a cross and was raised back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit so that justice was met because grace is free and lavish, but grace does not overwhelm justice. Justice must be served. The result, the penalty of sin is death. Justice had to be served. Grace could then be extended It was Jesus who died, the perfect one, on the cross so that the penalty of sin, which is death, would be paid. Which means then, this will bend your mind, that you became a Christian when Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus said, it's finished. And you, as one that he had chosen, became in him that day the potential of being fully in Christ, in love. Well, how do I access that? Because every relationship is reciprocal. If this was all one-sided, it couldn't be love. Love cannot demand robotic-like response. Every love relationship is reciprocal. In this whole burst of praise that we read, Verses 1 through 14, all of it has to do with what God has done. He's the great initiator, except three words that have to do with our part, and they're these. When you believed, that's it. That's the response. When you believed. So God is creating this people to live in community and diversity and love and has these great plans for us. And those plans include the washing of water so that all of the sticky and all the sand and all the salty just gets washed away until we, we are and look essentially like we were created in God's likeness and image. 
the grand sculptor, the Holy Spirit that is chipping away the stone of marble and hardness, of wrong thinking and confusion and error and pain and hurt and brokenness and chips away whatever doesn't look like Christ around the edges of our life until we emerge as this beautiful reflection for his glory and praise, as Paul wrote. And how do we access that? When you believed. You've seen a couple like this. They're so madly in love, they're almost embarrassing to look at. There's just sparkle in their eyes. They stand too close. They maintain eye contact without blinking too long. There is a smile on their face that only goes from grin to larger grin and back. They touch themselves, one another, and they, and they hold each other, and they're absolutely unaware that the rest of the world is happening around them. You're almost embarrassed. You feel like a voyeur looking in on this lovebird couple. What you didn't know is that a few days ago, he made a decision. He made a decision that he wanted to spend the rest of her life, his life with her in a committed marriage relationship. And he made good on that decision by going out and buying a beautiful diamond engagement ring. As you watch this couple, you see him drop to his knee. He pulls a little box out of his pocket. He holds her hands. He looks at her. He opens the box, and he says to me, her, will you marry me? Now, let me ask, are they engaged? No. Why? You got to say yes, Nikki. You got to say yes. She's not going to make it easy on the guy. His knee's starting to feel the gravel on the other side of his jeans, and his hands are starting to sweat, and he's feeling a little awkward down here on his knees looking up, and she's thinking this one over. He's irrevocably committed to this thing. He's made his decision, but he's waiting for her to say yes. So you know what she does, don't you? She takes the ring out to see what it looks like. That's her tip. No, no. She says, Mickey, yes, she says, yes. Are they engaged? They're engaged. When you believed, God the Father, in all of eternity, in love, initiated this relationship did all the work to make it possible, looked ahead, saw all of your goof-up sin, foibles, and faults. The ones you've already done will do today and likely will do tomorrow. Looked at the whole package and said, I choose you in love, in grace, on purpose, for purpose. Will you accept my grand proposal? So what are you believing for today? Some of you will join a, a man in the service last night who said, this is my day to receive God's gift of forgiveness and new life. He said yes to Jesus Christ. On his way out, he took one of the yes packets for people that are making that initial commitment to Christ and launching this marvelous new experience and joyful relationship. Some of you today may make that decision. What is your decision? All of us today get to believe in a fresh new way. Maybe for you today, it's a decision about grace. You know, it's so easy for us to demean 
the freeness of God's grace. By acting like to deserve it, we need to do at least a little bit. No, it's free. Will you receive it? Some of us feel that God gives grace for a while, and then he gets tired of us messing up. And so then we come and we beg, and if you forgive me just one more time for this thing, that's a demeaning of God's grace. He lavishes it on you. Today, maybe you're receiving his grace. Maybe for some of us today, like our friend, the business owner, you're receiving peace in a place in your life, grace and peace to you. God's wholeness, his provision, his righting the wrong, his protection, his blessing for you, whatever it is today. Would you with Paul bask in his love and burst in your joy and be open with your faith and join the church at Ephesus today with when you believed. Let's pray together.